You're listening to audio from Grace Family Church. If you'd like to explore more resources or give to our ministry, please visit us at gracepsl.org. And I'd like you to open your Bibles this morning to 1 Peter chapter 5. We are this morning, of course, continuing our study of the, this first letter of Peter. And I know last week I said we're going to end this Sunday, but I, I was uninformed, misinformed. I'm not going to say I lied. But I, I was coming to the close, I was going to just finish out, and in the, at the last, I think it's the second to last verse, there's a very interesting uh, greeting that actually Peter gives from the church uh, in Rome to the church in, uh, in um, Asia Minor. And uh, he, says, he says, those in Babylon, she in Babylon greets you. It's a very intriguing verse. And it's a very intriguing word, Babylon, and it's something that's very, uh, well, it's appropriate for right now and really relevant for what's going on in the world. So we're going to dive into Babylon next week. And uh, so I hope you're here for that. This morning, verses um, 8 through 11, the theme today is resist the devil. Resist the devil. So Peter says in verse 8, be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith, because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of sufferings. And the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you have suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong and firm, steadfast. To him be the power forever and ever. Amen. Now you'll remember that one of the the main reasons Peter wrote this letter to the churches was uh, to prepare them for the persecution that was to come and the suffering that was to come. They were already undergoing a bit of it. History tells us, though, it would get a lot worse. And the reason that the early church was suffering persecution was they were very public about the faith. What Peter calls not a faith here, but the faith. They were not suffering because they believed a faith among many, but because they believed the faith, the one and only true faith and the one and only true God who offered up his one and only son who is the one and only true Savior, Jesus Christ. And that exclusivity is why they suffered. Caesar was not Lord, they said. The Roman and Greek gods were not Lord. The Roman government was not Lord. There was only one Lord. And any other belief in any other so-called Lord was a, a false belief. Now, if they would have just incorporated Jesus into their already existing catalog of Greek gods, Roman gods, they wouldn't have suffered at all. If they would just added them to all the other ones, everything would have been fine. They suffered not because they personally believed that Jesus was their Lord, but because they proclaimed that Jesus was, in fact, everybody's Lord, whether they knew it or not, whether they believed it or not, whether they accepted it or not. He alone made heaven and earth. He alone died on the cross for our sins. And it is before he alone that every human being on earth will, will stand one day and give an account, what did you do with Jesus? That's why 
they were persecuted. You know, one of the main reasons that the church hasn't suffered much in the Western world is that many believers, many Christians have practically abandoned that idea of exclusivism. And they've acquiesced to the idea, a very popular idea in our culture, pluralism, which is the idea that all truth claims are equally valid. It sounds like this. You believe what you want to believe, I'll believe what I believe. I wish you believed by me, but you believe what you believe and I believe what I believe. That's pluralism. 64% of all evangelical Christians in this country believe there is more than one way to God. 60. I'm not talking mainline or Catholic. I'm talking evangelical. 64%. Scripture says, of course, there's only one true God who's the source of all truth. And there's only one way to know him through his son, Jesus Christ, who is the way and the truth and the life. And there is salvation found in no other name, Acts tells us. The truth is what God says is the truth. What God says is right. Every other point of view that diverges from what God says is false. And ultimately a manifestation of rebellion against God. And why we should always be respectful of people, of course. We should never be accepting of the lies that they believe. Lies that we once believed. Those lies lead to eternal judgment in hell. And therefore, it would be entirely unloving for us to resign ourselves to the attitude, you believe what you believe, I believe what I believe. And while we can't make people believe the truth of the gospel, we should never be okay with it. We should never be okay with them not believing the truth as if there are many acceptable alternatives. The gospel is the only truth, the only way to God. It's exclusive. There's no way, other way to be saved than through the gospel. And that's what scripture says. Now, I'm not suggesting that's the way to start your conversation with somebody who's an unbeliever. But I am saying that behind everything that you share with them about the gospel, that that's the foundation, that that is the conviction that you have. Jesus is the exclusive way. God is the exclusive source of truth. There is no other. The gospel that we believe is not just because we chose to believe it. It's not just for us. Scripture teaches us it's the truth for every human being. It's not a faith. Peter said it is the faith from God and for everyone. Now, I submit to you this morning, if you believe that, if you advocate that, if you live that out, Peter says, these verses say, you're going to suffer. You're going to suffer because of that. And behind that suffering, Peter takes it another step now in verse 5-8. Behind that suffering is a supernatural, malevolent being. Peter calls him your enemy, the devil, who he says prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. So four points this morning. Number one, who the devil is, and that's your enemy. Number two, what the devil does, he devours. What we are to do, number three, resist him. And what God will do, restore and strengthen us. So first of all, who the devil is, your enemy. Now, did you notice that? He says, be alert and sober and a sober mind. Your enemy, and I'm just as easy to say our enemy, our collective enemy, and that's true, no doubt, right? But he says, your, specifically you, 
your envy. That's the first thing you have to realize. The devil is not just our enemy. The devil is your enemy. Whether you recognize it or not, whether you feel it or not, whether you sense it or not, you live your life at all times in the context of an unseen spiritual war with a formidable enemy named the devil, who in Scripture, of course, is known by many other names, all of which reveal something about his character or also about his agenda. His most common name, of course, is Satan, which means opposer, adversary. The second most common name and the one used by Peter in this verse is the devil, which means slanderer, one who tries to shame through falsehood and misrepresentation. In Matthew 4, he's called the tempter when he comes to tempt Jesus in the wilderness. Revelation 12, he's the accuser of the brethren. John chapter 8, the father of all lies. Ephesians 2 calls him the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. 2 Corinthians 4, the God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so they cannot see the light of the gospel and the glory of Christ. Apostle John calls him the evil one who holds the whole world under his control or sway or power. And not only does he have control over the systems of the world in which we live, but also individuals. God told Paul, I'm sending you to preach the gospel to the Gentiles. Verse 18 of Acts 26, to open their eyes, turn them from darkness to light, and from the power of Satan to the power of God, so they may receive the forgiveness of sins. So the devil, number one, is your enemy. Number two, the devil was not always known as the devil, of course. A little history here. He was formerly known as Lucifer, a cherub angel created, created by God. He was the highest ranking angel of the highest ranking category or class of angels. Ezekiel tells us the model of perfection, full of wisdom and beauty, and quite possibly the angel who led the worship of God in heaven in spite of this this exalted position filled with pride over his own perfection and beauty. Ezekiel tells us that he desired to be God himself. And he led a heavenly revolt, Isaiah 14, uh, which subsequently revolted with a third of the other angels. Revelation 12, 4, they were cast down to the earth. Luke chapter 10 tells us from where, of course, he continued his rebellion against God by inciting at Adam and Eve themselves to rebel against God in the Garden of Eden. Thought he had some initial success. Things were going well until the, until the judgments came down, the announcement from God in the Garden. God promised that a seed of the woman would one day come that would crush the head of the serpent. And where the first Adam failed in the Garden, of Eden, the second Adam would not in the Garden of Gethsemane, where he said, not my will, but thy will be done. Jesus perfectly obeyed God from the temptations in the wilderness to the Garden of Gethsemane, all the way, Philippians 2 says, becoming obedient to death on the cross. And when he rose from the dead, Scripture tells us that Satan's authority was broken. And the days of his current power over the human race are numbered, ultimately, along with the fallen angels and demons. He'll be cast in 
to the eternal lake of fire, Revelation 20, and be forever judged. Now, the, the third thing you need to know about the devil, he's got a network. He's got a network. Because of his self-delusion that he can still defeat God, Satan continues his malicious rebellion to oppose God, to oppose God's truth by opposing God's servants. And that's why Peter writes this. Be alert, he says. And be of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Now, this opposition comes at us two ways. And, and uh, first of all, it's accomplished through partnership with our other enemies, the flesh and the world. Satan is always working in concert with the world and also with the sin nature within us. Ephesians 2, verse 2, you once walked, this is before we were in Christ, following the course of this world, first enemy, following the prince of the power of the air, second enemy, the spirit who is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, third enemy, sin nature. So you got the world, the flesh, and the devil, but they all work in concert. The devil never comes alone. He works also in combination with the sin within, the sin nature within us and, and the world's lies are around us. But the second thing you have to realize is that Satan's part of this opposition is never accomplished directly through Satan himself, but through a network comprised of fallen angels and demons. You have to realize Satan is not omnipresent. He is not like God. He's a created being. He can only be at one point, at one place, at a time. And presumably, that's working through some world leader or world influencer. I can think of a few right now. Satan is not omnipresent, though. But he does have an incredible network. And in essence, that network multiplies his efforts to the degree where he is spoken of throughout the New Testament as the adversary of every Christian through this network. This network operates, we just read, from the atmosphere above the earth. Ephesians 2.2 calls him the prince of the power of the air. The word air there means atmosphere just above the earth. This is why Paul says in Ephesians 6, put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle... It's not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. That's not the heaven of God. That's the heaven underneath. This is the atmospheric heaven. So in other words, the devil's not in hell. He doesn't live in hell. He's in the atmosphere. So are the demons. So are most of the fallen angels. Some of them are reserved in a special compartment awaiting future judgment. We talked about that earlier in our series in 1 Peter. So when Paul says here, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, he's not suggesting that we don't struggle with any natural flesh and blood evil, the evil we can see. What he's saying is behind, behind the evil we can see is an evil we cannot see, a supernatural evil, spiritual forces of evil in heavenly realms. And Peter says the same thing. He says, behind the troubles that we face, is often an unseen adversary who is seeking to devour. That's what the devil does. Number two, he devours. Again, be alert, be of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Now, you have to go back to, you know, the cultural historical context. These believers that Peter is writing to are suffering. 
And they're suffering in all kinds of ways. And, and when you're suffering, you're more vulnerable to fear, which makes it much easier to be deceived and to believe a lie about God or a lie about yourself. And like a lion can sense vulnerability and prey. Lions never go after the strong. They go after an animal that's been weakened. In the same way, Satan takes advantage of the moments of vulnerability in our lives, like a roaring or a hungry lion. I'm told that a lion is the loudest animal on planet Earth. A lion's roar uh, measures out about 115 decibels. In case you don't know what that means, if you were standing next to a jet plane on the tarmac, that's 120 decibels when it takes off. Five less decibels and you have the line. A very low, also loud sound. It's incredible. And uh, usually, most of that roaring is done at night because lions are nocturnal animals. The female lions sleep about 16 hours a day. The males about 20 hours a day. <laughs> Go figure. And so most of their activity, obviously, as at night, and although they don't typically roar when they are stalking their prey, that would not be advantageous for them. It was a common belief in Peter's day, and it is in our day also, that when lions roared at night, that they were hungry and that they were on the hunt. I would believe the same thing if I was backpacking on the Serengeti. In the middle of the night, all of a sudden, I hear 115 dB roar somewhere near me. I'm not thinking, they're just talking to the other lions, <laughs> right? I'm not going to think that naturally. Or I'm thinking, man, we, I need a Kevlar tent. This thing is not going to work when that thing comes after me. And therefore, like a lion on the hunt, so Satan goes about seeking whom he may devour. And he does it in two ways in the context of this passage. He does it firstly by outwardly instigating persecution against the church, but also by inwardly instigating fear and doubt through lies. This is how he works. He's a father of lies. Jesus said in John 8:44, there is no truth in him. Zero, none. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. And you know that you are believing his lies when you're experiencing fear or anger or depression, hopelessness or helplessness. All of those emotions are the result of looking to something else other than Jesus because you are believing a lie. I often think of it this way, to the degree that I am not both obeying and enjoying God, I am believing a lie. To the degree that I am not both enjoying, not just enjoying and not obeying, not just obeying and not enjoying, but obeying and enjoying. There is some lie that has lodged itself in my thinking. And, you know, most people, obviously, when they think of the devil, they immediately think of, you know, Satanism, sorcery, the occult, witchcraft, demonic possession. Undoubtedly, those are strategies, but I think those are the, I'm going to throw you guys off so you don't get the main thing of what I'm doing. It's kind of a distraction. His primary strategy is getting you to believe lies. He's the father of lies. 
distorted, unbiblical perceptions of yourself, of God, and of the world around you. And the strategy is not so much the lie itself as it is getting you to believe the lie. The power is not in the lie. The power is in the believing of the lie. For example, two young believers, both told by someone that they admired that in their life they would amount to nothing. One rejects it. He says to himself, that's just not true. God's got a plan for my life. He cares for me. He just read 1 Peter 5, 7. He cares for me. He's got a plan for me. That can't possibly be true. The other one, the other one accepts it. And what happens is he becomes angry then, and then disillusioned and eventually depressed. Sometime later, when someone asks him, why are you so depressed? He says, well, I'm depressed because of what was spoken over me. Not true. You're depressed because you believe what was spoken over you. It's not the lie that has the power. It's believing the lie. And this strategy of getting you to believe his lies is almost always carried out through an agent or an intermediary. He rarely comes directly. He uses the world system. He uses culture. He uses literature. He uses media. He uses social media. A lot. He uses a person, a parent, a friend, a peer, a professor, lots of professors, or some pop culture icon. He uses an agent. He works through to expose you to the lies, and he does it nonstop. In the garden, he used the serpent. In Job's life, he used who? His friends. In Jesus' life, he even used Peter. Remember after, you know, that's coming around towards the end and Jesus says to the disciples, you know, I'm going to be uh, delivered over to the hand of Jewish leaders and I'm going to be killed. And Peter says, no, Lord, that will never happen to you. No, 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 no. And what did Jesus say back to him? Peter, you're wrong. No, he said, get behind me, Satan. Now, why do you say that? Well, because Satan was using Peter's words to mean more than Peter meant. He was bringing a lion on that. See, Peter didn't mean that. Peter just basically meant, you can't die, you're the Messiah, and you know, you have to set up your kingdom, and after all, you know, I'm going to be on the right and somebody else on the left. This is what's going to happen, right? You're going to subdue Rome. This can't happen. You can't die. Otherwise, that can't happen. But Satan used that and basically whispered to Jesus, you can bypass the cross if you want. That's why he says, get behind me, Satan. So the devil's primary strategy is to devour by getting you to believe lies, and that is the devouring that, people, that Peter here is referring to. And maybe for these folks, under their conditions, in these particular churches in Asia Minor, maybe, maybe that lie sounded something like this. God doesn't care about you guys. He doesn't care about your pain or what you're going through. I mean, it's been so long. It's obvious he, he can't do anything about it anyway. This misery, this adversity, it's never going to end. You should really rethink your loyalty to a God that would allow you to go through this. Why are you trying so hard? It would just be so much easier and better if you went back to your to your old life. And if that temptation doesn't work, 
he switches to accusation. And that sounds like this. And you call yourself a Christian? You do? Really? You're serious? Now, Peter knew firsthand what that was like, didn't he? He abandoned and denied Jesus on the night he died. Not once, three times. Like a wounded deer pitifully trying to escape a mountain lion. The once confident and strong Peter who says, I'll never leave you, I'll never deny you. He became defenseless prey. That's what pride does. But earlier that same night, Jesus had prayed for Peter. He had prayed, Peter, that Peter's faith would not fail, that his ministry would rise again from the ashes of fear and defeat. He says, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift all of you as wheat, but I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. And here comes some of the most beautiful words in all of the Bible. And when you have turned back, not if, when God is able to keep you, he is able to make you stand. Jesus said, all that the Father gives me, I will not lose one. So that means, and when you return, strengthen, strengthen your brothers. What grace. The same Peter that cowered before a servant girl over a fire denying that he ever knew Jesus. He lived a life of incredible loyalty to Jesus and at the end was himself crucified. And before he died, for boldly proclaiming his love and loyalty to Jesus, he, through the Holy Spirit, wrote a letter to all suffering believers in all ages and for all time called the letter of Peter, his first. Peter had learned that Satan prowls about like a hungry lion firsthand, but he also learned that God arms us to fight very well, even in our suffering. God gives us invincible truths to guard our vulnerable hearts. But we must believe them, not just know about them. There's a difference between knowing truth and actually believing truth. We must believe them. We must confess them. We must use them to resist Satan's lies that devour. You know, when it comes to the world, the Bible says, renew your minds. Don't be conformed to the world. Renew your minds to God's word, right? When it comes to sin and the sin nature, we're called to repent and renew our faith in the God's word and the Lord Jesus. But when it comes to the devil, we are called to resist. That's what we're to do, resist. And that's what he says here, resist him standing firm in the faith. Now, there's a few things we need to know about resistance. First of all, resistance requires you to be spiritually alert and spiritually sober. That's why verse 8 begins, be alert and of sober mind. Have some spiritual sobriety about you because you cannot resist what you cannot perceive. 
A lot of believers don't even see what the enemy is doing. They're not even aware of him. A lot of times Christians fall into one of two categories. There are those that are always thinking about him and those that are never thinking about him. The Bible puts us somewhere in the middle. But you cannot resist what you cannot perceive. You need to be in tune with the Holy Spirit. You need to be in fellowship with the Holy Spirit. You need to be in submission to the Holy Spirit who leads your life because you cannot resist when you're doing things your own way, unaware of Satan's schemes, drunk with your own self-sufficiency. That's why he says be sober. Self-sufficiency inebriates us. Humble dependence makes us sober spiritually. Number two, resistance requires confrontation. Resistance implies an act of determined opposition and, and confrontation. A very similar passage to this one, James 4, verse 7. He says, resist the devil and he will flee from you. And that's a very encouraging because it means I do not have to be subject to the lies. The lies don't have to have power over me. I can resist. So resistance then is not passive. It, it represents an active engagement against our foe. We will defeat the devil's lies if we are active, but if we remain passive, we will not. We see this exemplified in Jesus, in his wilderness temptations, where he verbally, Jesus verbally says, away from me, Satan. Get behind me, Satan. Be gone, Satan. I think my favorite translation is, beat it, Satan. <laughs> but you know, Jesus did more than verbally rebuke Satan. He also resisted in each of those three temptations by quoting a truth of God's word. And that's the third thing about resistance is it requires a solid foundation. And for us, that's the word of God. So think about it naturally speaking. If you're going to resist something, you have to have something either behind you or underneath you by which you can push back. You need a solid foundation. And that solid foundation for us is, is God's word. Peter says, resist him standing firm in the faith. And the faith means the body of truth revealed in God's word. Use that truth. That is what you can use to push back with. That's how you resist. Resistance doesn't mean that you kind of summon up all of your oomph. All of your powers, it means you by faith lay hold of the power of God revealed in the gospel. Romans 1, for in the gospel is the power of God revealed. Not just the power to save, but the power for everything else in your life, in your walk with Christ on this earth. You triumph over Satan's devouring by continually trusting in and speaking God's word. If Jesus needed to do that, where does that leave us? It is written. It is written. The fourth thing, resistance requires perspective. The last clause here of this verse Peter gives us a motivation for standing in the faith and resisting the devil. He says, resist him, standing firm in the faith, because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of sufferings. Now, it, it means this. What he means here is that you're at war, but you're not alone. First of all, God's with you, and he cares for you, and he's equipped you. But not only is God with you, there are other believers 
with you too. They're fighting the same fight of faith as you're fighting. You don't know them. You may never meet them, but they're fighting right alongside you. You've got to see that. One of Satan's tactics is to isolate a group of believers and convince them that they're all alone, you know, like the churches in Asia Minor. You guys are off by yourself. Satan's doing double time on you. The rest of us down here, we're sitting in our lawn chairs by the poolside. Not true. Peter reminds them that they're not alone, and neither are we. I mean, there's a church that probably is meeting Sunday night over in Hong Kong. They're fighting the same fight we are. It doesn't matter where it is. It's the same fight. It's a fight of faith. It's a good fight of faith. In fact, everyone in this room, if we take it and move it to a personal level, everyone in this room, everyone in this room that's a believer in Jesus Christ is a part of the resistance movement. I kind of like the way that sounds. We're part of the resistance movement, right? We're a band of brothers and sisters, right? Together, none of us are, are, are alone. Whatever sufferings we're facing in this world because of our faith in Christ, because of suffering for righteousness sake, they're, they're not unique because everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus, Paul writes Timothy, will, will be persecuted. And this not only relieves us of the temptation of self-pity, poor old me, I'm going through these things in my life, but also motivates us to bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ, that we can be there for one another. Because we're side by side, because we're a band of brothers, because we're all part of the resistance movement. And people in the resistance movement, they're loyal to one another. It's them against the world. In this last chapter, Peter's been basically summarizing how to handle any adversity, any type of suffering, really. It begins, we saw last week, with ridding ourselves of pride and humbling ourselves before God because he's infinitely more capable to direct our lives than we are. And when we try to control things, it produces anxiety. When we give him the reins, it produces peace. And then from that place of peace, we confidently resist the devil's attempts to deceive us through lies. From a place of strength, not weakness. We know Satan is a real enemy, but ultimately a defeated enemy. He's a real threat, but he's a limited threat. He's on a leash. We know that. And God has granted us the grace to resist him. First John says, greater is he who is in us, if we combine First Peter, than he who is prowling around looking to devour. The greater one is in us, the Holy Spirit and we can rest assured in the fact that God has equipped us and that God will also restore us and strengthen us. That's what God does, Peter says in this verse. He says, and the God of all grace, verse 10, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you have suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong and firm and steadfast to him be the power for ever and ever Amen. Now, the suffering is related to being a believer in this world, in a world where the systems of this world, and we're seeing that more and more and more, and maybe we'll talk next week about this when we talk about Babylon. The more and more we're seeing it, though, it used to be more undercover. Now it's just out in the open. The systems of this world are governed by Satan. The earth is the Lord's. The system is Satan's. 
Remember when he tempted Jesus to him up a high mountain? He says, all of this, all this and its glory I'll give to you if you just bow down. Again, you can bypass the cross. It's his. The system is. And we're seeing that more and more in real time, not just theologically, not just in Scripture, but we're seeing it play out in, in, in everyday life. It can be challenging. It's going to get more challenging. I've been saying that for 24 weeks. We're in the 24th week of this sermon series. And before that, I taught you all the way through 2 Timothy. It's going to get tough. You need to get ready. Regardless, however difficult it gets for us, God's grace is sufficient to empower us to live a life, a faithful life of praise to God, no matter what happens in any circumstances. He is sufficient. The grace from the God of grace, you know, first came into our lives uh, when he opened up our eyes and ears to hear the truth of the gospel. It's a beautiful story in the book of Acts, how Paul preaching to some ladies outside of Ephesus, and the Bible says that God opened up the heart of one of them named Lydia to hear what Paul was saying. In other words, everyone was hearing, but God worked to what? Open her heart up. See, you don't get saved unless your heart gets opened up. And God in his grace did that to each one of us who, who are believers in Jesus Christ. There was a point where you didn't get it, and you would have never gotten it. But God opened up your heart. And that grace that opened up our heart to hear the gospel, to be forgiven, what happened at that very moment is that Christ forgave us and he began sharing his life with us. John 1, 4 says, in him was life, and that life was the light of men. And Peter says that one day this salvation that we have will ultimately culminate in Christ resurrecting us and sharing his glory with us. He shares his life with us at salvation, but by the very same grace one day, he will share his glory with you. We are called, it says here, by the God of glory to glory. Glory is the end. And you have to know that in order to face suffering. You've got to know that glory is the end, but before glory arrives, there'll, there'll be suffering, which Peter says... We'll be here for a little while. Now, that could refer to a season in somebody's life for sure. When we're going through a difficulty of some sort. But it could also refer to our entire life on this earth as a whole compared to our life in eternity. And I think that's what he means here. I think that's what Paul was getting at over in Romans 8 when he says, I consider that our present sufferings, I mean, there's great things in this life. There's wonderful moments. But compared to heaven, the psalmist says, this is the valley of the shadow of death. God still sets a table before us here in the presence of our enemies. He still brings us to the quiet brook. He still leads us to the green grass. But this is not heaven. It's not even close. And so Paul says, when you compare the two, there is no comparison. And you got to see the other in order to walk through this. You got to see what's coming. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed where? Around us? 
in us. He says in 2 Corinthians, for our light and momentary. Light? See, now, that would be an insult to somebody who's really suffered, unless, of course, you were comparing it to the glory to come. He says, our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. Those two verses are, make a beautiful picture. The word there means a balance. Compare. It means, it's axios. It means to put in a scale and balance. And he's, both of them are saying, if you took even the worst case scenario of suffering in this life, and then you took the glory that will be revealed in you, around you, forever and ever and ever and ever. You took the suffering of an 80-year life here, even if it was very, very difficult, very, very difficult. And I say this gently and with respect to those of you who have suffered greatly. It would still be like a feather compared to the anvil of God's glory, compared to the weight of God's glory. In fact, if you drop the weight, it would just obliterate the scale. Now, either way, whether Peter's talking about a season of suffering this life or this life as a whole, God's promise is always in all circumstances and situations to restore us to strengthen us, to make us firm, and to make us steadfast. Because the God of grace who has called us to eternal glory will by His grace, by His grace, the same grace when you return, strengthen your brothers, that grace. That same undeserved favor. By His grace, He will strengthen us, He will fortify us, and we will persevere in the faith. He is able and he will. No matter what the attacks, the persecutions, no matter what the problems that we face, we can stand firm, firm in God's power, firm knowing that God cares for us, firm know, knowing that it doesn't matter, 115 decibels from that lion doesn't make any difference at all because we got another lion. We got the lion of the tribe of Judah on our side. And he's infinitely greater. He's the creator, the sustainer of all that is. He is sovereign God over all. And in the end, we win because Christ has already won through his death, his burial, and his resurrection. And believing that, believing that makes us strong and firm and steadfast no matter what we face. Amen. 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 Father, this morning, thank you for your word. Thank you for your word of life that brings life to us and truth to us and it dispels the lies and the fallacies and brings in the truth and makes us firm and steadfast. We have an enemy, yes, we know, but you've equipped us. You've equipped us and we know that his future has already been written. The eternal lake of fire. And we know that we have all authority and power over him and that we can successfully resist his lies trying to devour us and steal our joy in you and our purpose in you in this life steal our boldness through threats we won't let him do it we won't let him do it greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world greater is he who is in us than he who prowls about like a roaring lion we will not be devoured 
And we know too, Lord, that you have called us to not let him devour anyone else in our circle. So we won't be silent. When we see somebody going the wrong way, Lord, you've called us, restore. Speak to, reach out, encourage. Don't let them be deceived by the devourer. Father, maybe we're even thinking of people right now. We've seen them. They've been walking away, making excuses, rationalizing. Give us the boldness, the love, the concern to see the spiritual reality of what's going on. They're not just making a decision. They're being deceived. Give us the humility and the grace to rescue from the jaws of the devourer. There's so much at stake. Help us to see the the spiritual reality of that. Help us to realize what's going on in the unseen world around us at all times and that how that affects everything in our lives. And help us continually sense and know and believe the ultimate victory has already been won. In Jesus' name. And all God's people said, let's all stand up this morning. Hallelujah. I'd like our prayer team to come up. You need prayer for anything today? We want to spend a few minutes praying for you. Anybody else? If you can hang around for some fellowship, that's great. If you've got to go, drive safely. We will see you next week to finish up First Peter. God bless.